You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. On September 8th, way back in 2019, Pastor Jonathan started a new sermon series working through the book of Exodus. Over the next several months, we worked through the first 20 chapters and slowed down when it came to the Ten Commandments, which we just read. This is where Israel received the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments at the foot of the Mount Sinai. The book of Genesis ends with a large family, 70 descendants of Israel that have moved to Egypt. And they will leave Egypt having grown to as much as 600,000 men plus women and children. Their mixed multitude that is led into the wilderness, rescued through the Red Sea. In Exodus 19, about three months after leaving Egypt, Israel arrives at the mountain of God, potentially two million large. They are a brand new nation that God is establishing. And at Mount Sinai, God is making a covenant with his people. At this mountain, Israel received the book of the law and extensive instructions on how to build a sanctuary for Yahweh so that he may be in the presence of his people. The nation of Israel will be here through the rest of the book of Exodus. They will be here at the mountain long enough to celebrate the Passover meal. And about a month after that, they will head out as recorded in Numbers 10. So the goal this morning is to look at a couple of themes in the book of Exodus. We want to get back into the book a little bit, see where we've been in these first 20 chapters and how that connects to where we are going as we dive into to case law and circumstantial laws that the Lord gives his people. So this morning, we're going to walk through three things here. First, we'll be reminded of the grace of God in revealing his name. Second, we will see the nearness of God in the giving of his law. And last, we will see how Jesus is the pinnacle of both of those things. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, there are so many themes and connections in the book of Exodus. Themes that carry through everything that Moses wrote and themes that carry through all of scripture. Would you this morning illuminate our minds to the glory of who you are and how you relate to your people. Increase our understanding and increase our worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's look at the grace of God in revealing his name. So we've got to follow the story here a little bit, starting at the beginning of Exodus. So the book of Exodus starts with a summary of what's happened in the time that's passed since the end of the book of Genesis. The people of Israel have multiplied greatly, have filled the land, A new king has risen in Egypt, one that does not know the legacy of Joshua, and looks on the people of Israel now as a threat. He oppressed the people of Israel with harsh labor and slavery. He tried to restrict their growth and their strength by killing all the male children. And in the midst of this, Moses is born, and he is put into a basket in the river and found by the daughter of Pharaoh. She unknowingly hires the child's mom to care for him and names him Moses. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. Once grown, Moses kills an Egyptian who is beating one of the Hebrews. He then flees to Midian in fear. He marries and has a child there. Then 
for the first time in the book of Exodus, God is mentioned at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry, was, their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So here, for the first time, God is mentioned. He's been active all along, but the first time it is mentioned that the people cried to God, and God heard, and God knew, and he remembered his covenant. And soon, he will act. So while Moses is caring for a flock at Mount Horeb, By the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a bush that is not consumed. As he draws near, God speaks to Moses and identifies himself first as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God here goes on to tell Moses that he has chosen him to free the people of Israel from affliction and slavery of the Egyptians. Moses asks several questions to God, One of them being this. Moses asks, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the first time in history, God reveals his personal name. God answers Moses' question and says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. This is my name, and it shall be remembered for all generations. This isn't just the answer to one of many questions that Moses asks. He asks a lot of things of God, some of them good, some of them bad in here. But he says, what is your name? And he responds and says, I am Yahweh. This declares a new intimacy that God has with his people. He has heard their cry and he is coming near. And his name is to be remembered for all generations. The book of Exodus is the biggest jump in God's revelation of himself until Jesus comes. He reveals his personal name to be remembered in all generations. He will reveal his law that is relevant from generation to generation. He instructs Israel to build a sanctuary so that God may dwell among them. He adds a sacrificial law as a precursor to the sacrifice of Jesus who will come. Again, so that God may dwell among his people. There's a new intimacy here and themes that carry through the rest of the Old Testament and through Jesus' teaching and the apostles and beyond. Exodus sets the table in so many ways and is a significant revelation of God saying, here is my name, Moses, and I am here. The most significant thing in that story is not that the bush was burning but not consumed, but that Moses was not consumed. God dwells in unapproachable light, and yet he came to his people. He came to sinful people, like Moses, someone who was on the run, and revealed himself. 
as God and gave grace. It's unbelievable that God would speak to us and that we would know his name. Uh, Maybe that's a given now because we're centuries and centuries beyond this and, and Jesus has come and we have seen those things. But for Israel to say, this is our God, and, and what is his name? And God to say, I'm, I'm Yahweh. I am what I am. I am the I am. Is grace that he would reveal himself and they would not be consumed. The significance is amplified in Exodus 6 when Moses is discouraged after his first meeting with Pharaoh and he comes back and God reminds him and says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So he's saying, Moses, there's a new level here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I did not give them my name. But I've revealed my name to you, and I will be with you as you go. Now go save my people from the Egyptians. Our name is not just what we are called. Your name is your reputation. Your name is your character. It represents you. And all of Exodus from this point forward will continue to answer the question, who is Yahweh and what is he like? So Moses takes this information to the leaders of Israel. He goes to them and speaks all that the Lord had commanded him. And the leaders of Israel believe God, that he has heard their cries and they believe and worship him. Then Moses will go to Pharaoh to reveal the name of the God of the Hebrews to him as well, and his response is a little different. In Exodus 5, Pharaoh first hears of Yahweh, and he says and responds with this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. From Exodus 5 to the end of 14, God will continue to answer that question of who is Yahweh. He will reveal his name to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and to Israel so that they may trust him. He will fill out who is Yahweh and what is he like. In the coming interactions with Pharaoh, there's a pattern that emerges here. We see an increased revelation of God, which I've mentioned is is love and grace in itself. We don't deserve God to reveal himself to us. We are sinful people. Israel is described as a stiff-necked people, always going astray. We are bent on evil, yet God, in his grace, reveals himself to us. And we're not consumed when he does it. And so the pattern we see here with Pharaoh through the plagues is that God reveals himself. Therefore, there's an increased knowledge of God, and there's an increased hardening of Pharaoh's hearts. So we're going to look at four quick examples here as we keep working through the book. So four examples. First, when God instructs Moses and Aaron in chapter 7 and says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on the Egyptians and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. By great acts of judgment, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring my people, Israel, from among them. Then, During the fourth plague, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. In Exodus 8, it says, And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. 
that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Yet in response to this, Pharaoh hardens his heart. So first, the Lord is going to work with his mighty hand and save Israel. And then he increases knowledge of saying, I will make a distinction between my people and your people, Pharaoh, so that you may know that God is in the midst of the earth. Third example, the fifth plague, striking of the livestock. Even in Pharaoh's house now, it says this in Exodus 9. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And Pharaoh again hardens his heart. Increased specificity here. He says, on your house now I will bring these, Pharaoh, so that you may know. There's a reality check in here. Lest we think this is a battle of two powers here, or two kings going at war, or there's some sort of negotiation going on here. He says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. Again, in these plagues, the grace of the Lord in revealing himself. It's not a negotiation. There's not a battle going on here. The Lord is revealing himself so that Pharaoh can see it, the Egyptians can see it, Israel can see it, that the whole world can see it and hear his name. So God says, let's just be clear here. We're not, we're not struggling it out here. Everything that my hand does is done. Everything that I speak will come to be. There's a reality check here, yet Pharaoh hardens his heart. And the seventh plague, hail, the end of Exodus 9. Moses says to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, says Moses. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Yahweh says he is doing all these things to summarize that you may know that I'm the God of Israel, that you may know that I am in the midst of the earth that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth, so that the earth may know my name, so that you may know that I'm not just among the earth, but the earth is mine. So we see increased revelation, increased knowledge, yet increased hardness of his heart. And Israel is not much different. The fact that a holy God would choose to make himself known to unholy people is grace, We see the purposes of the Lord, that by his grace he has chosen Israel to be his firstborn and makes a distinction between them and the other nations. Remember, as these plagues go, they're curses on Egypt, but they're blessings on Israel. Israel leaves blessed by God, yet their hearts harden in the wilderness. And so those that benefit from God's word and God's interjecting into the story, still have hardness of hearts. But God remembers his covenant with Abraham, and he will fulfill it. And so he sets Israel apart. So Yahweh is proclaiming his name here as he rescues Israel. He will continue to be present with his people, and he will further reveal his will and his character as we get to the law. He continues to answer the question, who is Yahweh and what is he like? 
So second, let's turn to the law here. The nearness of God in giving the law. So there's a lot of things that are in the law, and I don't want us to miss them. So I'm actually going to zoom out a little bit and talk broadly about the law and what God might be doing here. And there's a good illustration, I think, from playing catch with my son. First, I don't know if you can be a legit pastor here unless you have a baseball reference in one of your sermons and a baseball illustration. So I didn't grow up playing much baseball, but I'm playing with my son, and, and here you go. So, so we're playing catch, and he gets that we're playing catch. If I asked him, he'd say, we're, we're playing catch. So he throws the ball in this general direction, and I will often catch it. You know, I'll be over here, I'll be over here, I'll be over here, and I'll catch it. And he will say, I did it. Um, I'm not sure what he's talking about there, uh, but he say, I, I, I did it. I assume he means throwing the ball. But then time comes that I need to pass it back. So I throw it, trying to nail that glove, and it ricochets off, and his response is, Daddy, you missed. Um, and outside of being humbled a little bit as this goes back and forth, Daddy, I made it, Daddy, you missed, I realize that he can describe that we are playing catch, but he's, he's missing it. He's to catch the ball um, when I throw it. He missed the ball, not me. And so he understands that we're playing catch, but he's not grasping the full reality of what's going on here. And so this morning, as we zoom out a little bit, I want us to grasp the full reality of what is going on here. We can view the law that way. We can get narrow here and miss all that God is doing to proclaim his name and reveal his grace and reveal his love. And so Moses gives us help actually in Deuteronomy 4 as he summarizes the law as it's been given to Israel. Moses says to Israel, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today. And so he says here, among many things, the Lord is near to his people, and the nations will see that and see the wisdom and nearness and righteousness of God. Not just a list of rules, but God's name being proclaimed here and his nearness to his people. So four examples here about the Ten Commandments specifically and going into other laws of God's unique nearness to the people of Israel here. So this is not the first law that existed. There's been several laws that have been dug up around this time or prior to the law. But remember, we left Genesis with a family of 70. So there are kind of some house rules. They knew certain ways to worship God. They knew commands of God. But for the first time, you got this nation out of slavery that's establishing itself and needs a law. And so God comes and makes a covenant with his people and gives a law at this time, now that there's a multitude of people. Um, and so it's not the first law, but it's the perfect law of God. So four things that have it stand out a little bit here. Yahweh has saved Israel prior to giving the law. We see in verse 1 of Exodus 20, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
It is not Israel's actions that have set them apart. God said, I have done this. I have saved you. I remember my covenant with Abraham. Now go and do these things. Obey this law. I'm making a covenant with you now. Moses met God on this mountain and he said, I will bring my people back to it. And he does, just as he promised. God has shown his faithfulness over and over to Moses and the people of Israel. And he says, you've, you've seen this. I have rescued you. And then he gives these commands. And so God's unique nearness to his people as rescuing them prior to making this covenant with them. So that's the first unique nearness here. The second one is the law has several commands that are related directly to God. The first four commandments have vertical realities to them. There are many laws that were attributed to God's giving them, but there's a uniqueness here saying the first four commandments and the most important commandment relate to how you relate and worship and understand God. There's a uniqueness of intimacy here that four of the Ten Commandments are directly related to God, saying the foundation of this law, of its ethics and its wisdom, are related to how you relate to me, God says. That's the second unique example here. Third, to make it go a little farther, the law of God goes deeper than actions. The law addresses heart motivations and what is good for our soul. So if we look at the example of the 10th commandment, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's things. Now there's no restoration that needs to happen there. You haven't taken anything, but this is still wrong. The law of God isn't just concerned about making society whole, but making individuals whole. It is life to us to not covet the things of our neighbors. Rather, it is good and right for us to trust God with what we have and to love our neighbor and seek their good, even to love our enemy and seek their good. So the law goes deeper than actions. It goes deeper than just controlling the crowd. It goes to heart motivations that allow us and our society to thrive. You shall not covet. You shall not take, but you shall not even covet your neighbor's things. Rather, love him instead. This is why David can speak of the law in this way. Listen to Psalm 19 and the law that David had as we're walking through it here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So three, the law goes deeper than external actions. It gets to our heart and how he has made us. And four, the love of Yahweh is the foundation of all other commands. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew 22 quotes part of Deuteronomy 6. So it's in the Old Testament too. And says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and prophets. And John reinforces this in 1 John. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God 
because God is love. So we can't fulfill commandments 5 through 10 unless we fulfill commandments 1 through 4, namely fulfill commandment 1. We cannot love our neighbor without loving God first. This is radical when it comes to laws, to say the greatest and first law of Minnesota law is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not even a category there. That's not even on the forefront of people's minds. It's so disconnected from who God is and what we ought to do. Yet he says you can't fulfill any of the law unless you love me. The law is fulfilled in love. And if the law is fulfilled in love, then the aim of the law is love. We can't separate it out and say this part is oppression or this part is hurt or this part is pain. God says, worship me and the law is fulfilled in love. And so every aspect of the law is seeking to do what is wise and loving in that moment. So when we look into the coming weeks here, remember God is promoting human flourishing, not restricting it. He's revealing his will and his wisdom, and he's going to great lengths to be near his people. His law gives guidance when the ideal does not happen. In a world that's saturated with sin, when sin makes a mess of things, the law is an act of love by God. He gives us a lamp to our path. His situational laws help us understand what is loving and what is right in specific situations even in really messy situations. And so as we move forward into 21 and beyond, don't remember 20, a few verses beforehand, the Lord that has rescued Israel from slavery, the law that's fulfilled in love, loving God and loving your neighbor as we move into parts of the law that are a little bit more complex and a little bit harder to understand. But in all of this, think of God's nearness to his people. He is giving them grace. He's giving them understanding that other nations would say, who is like this people and who is like their God who is so near to them, who gives them wisdom and help when they cry out to him? And so God, through his law, is loving us and giving guidance and showing himself to us. As we get to the end of the book, it talks all about the tabernacle. Again, God dwells in unapproachable light, yet he comes to be near his people. And it's important that we get it right because we are sinful people and he is holy. If we don't see the reality of what's all this mess about don't work on the rocks, as Clint had read, and not steps but a ramp so that your nakedness isn't opposed, we're missing the fact of this holy God that's coming near to us and the sinfulness of our hearts that we downplay and ignore or give little thought to. There's a holy God coming near to us in the law and letting us know what is good and right and true. And so in Exodus, God here is revealing his name. He's giving his presence to Israel. He has done this in a way that's not rivaled for coming centuries, not until the fullness of time comes, not until God sends his own son. In Exodus, God speaks his name And when Jesus comes, that name is bestowed on Jesus in triumph through the cross. In Exodus, God comes near to his people, but Jesus becomes one of his people, taking on flesh. In Exodus, God gives the law, and Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God's name and character. It says, in him the fullness of God 
was pleased to dwell. And Jesus, being obedient to death, even death on the cross, was highly exalted to the Father. And he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He bestowed on Jesus the name Yahweh that he revealed to Moses at the beginning. And Jesus is the pinnacle of God coming near, not in a tabernacle next to Israel or among Israel, but in the tabernacle of sinful human flesh, yet without sin himself. He came nearer still as he died and sent his spirit to be in among us and tabernacle inside of us. Jesus is the pinnacle of God coming near to us and coming in sinful human flesh so that he may die to save us. At last, Jesus fulfills the law on both sides. He was perfect, so he filled the law perfectly, every single aspect of the law. But he also fulfilled the sacrificial side of the law for those that were unrighteous and God wanted to give grace and forgiveness and bring back to him. So Jesus did the law perfectly and was perfect himself, yet made an effectual sacrifice for sin so those who do not fulfill the law might still be with their God. The one who knew no sin made the payment for sin so that we might be reconciled to God and be in his presence forever. The holy God in his presence forever. Jesus brought us back to God. His body was broken because of his great love for us. And now by his spirit, we can love others. We cannot love without him. For God is love. And so if we do not love God, we do not know love. And we cannot love. But he has sent his spirit to dwell inside of us. Jesus' sacrifice was so effectual that the Father sent his spirit to dwell among us and in us and to teach us. The Lord saved Israel from physical bondage and now saves us from the spiritual bondage of sin. Sin that merits eternal condemnation. And all of this is done to the glory of his name. Your name, like I said, carries your reputation and God has a reputation for saving sinners. God has a reputation for saving sinners and being faithful to his people all the way through. So come to him if you have never before. It is his desire to save you and he has the power to save you. One of the themes that I didn't talk about that I'm going to right now is that everything that happens in Exodus is just as God has said. He rescued Israel as he said. He blessed them on their way out from the Egyptians, as he said. He fought for them, as he said. He sent his Redeemer, as he said. And he has said, those who come to him, he will not cast out. And so believe him, because it's true. He does all that he says, just as he said it. And in the fullness of time, Jesus came, born of a woman, died on the cross, paid for our sins, him who knew no sin, became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God, so that we may be in his presence and not be incinerated and destroyed. He is a holy God. Do not mistake his nearness for a commonality with us, but he makes deep provision in the law here to be near us and all the way to Jesus, the fullest picture of that, who came and dwelt and died 
among us. And so if you have never come to him before, come to him this morning. Be freed from your sin. Repent of it. And gain new life. And be a new creation. A new creation of God's that he loves and will hold dearly forever. Would you pray with me? Father, the realities and the connections in Exodus are beyond our comprehension, Lord. That you would, you would speak to us, that you would make a covenant with us, that you would be among us. And so we praise you and thank you that you have done that. We praise you that you have revealed your name, Yahweh. We praise you that you are Emmanuel. We praise you that you are Jesus, God who saves. And so would you work in our hearts, Lord, afresh to, to believe these things, to trust that you are loving, Lord, and all that we understand and all that we don't understand. Your, your thoughts and plans are beyond us, yet you reveal many of them to us. And you give us so much grace. Thank you, Yahweh, for your son who gives us grace. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As we transition to the table this morning, Yahweh brought Israel to a mountain. And Jesus invites us to a table, to a spiritual meal, to be reminded of the love of Yahweh through the life and death of Jesus. Greater love hath no one than this, than he lay down his life for a friend. The bread and cup are primarily for the members of City's Church, but if Jesus is your treasure this morning, then we welcome you to eat and drink with us. But if you are not there yet, we ask that you let the elements pass, lest you proclaim something that you do not yet believe and bring judgment upon yourself. His body is true bread, and his blood is true drink. Let us serve you.